If you have your Bibles with you one more time, I invite you to turn with me again to the Gospel of John. This time we'll be turning to John chapter 3. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1130. We're going to be reading and thinking about a very familiar passage of Scripture this morning. Probably the most familiar in all of God's Word. And as I was praying and thinking about what to speak on this morning, a couple weeks ago while I was running, this passage of Scripture came into my mind. And so uh, that's where I've landed today. We're going to read one verse this morning. It's John chapter 3 and verse 16. And this is what the Word of God says. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This verse has been labeled the greatest verse in the Bible. For sure, it is the best known, most memorized, most quoted, and dearly loved verse in all of the scriptures. Author and commentator Bruce Milne says that it is a masterly and moving summary of the gospel cast in terms of the love of God. The great reformer Martin Luther called this verse the Bible in miniature because it contains the heart of God's entire message. Dr. Stephen Lawson describes this verse as the purest expression of the gospel in the Bible. It is the good news of salvation from God and His Son. And when it is believed, God moves the individual from condemnation to eternal life. And this is why John 3.16 is often referred to as the greatest verse in the Bible. There is hardly a place in the world to which the gospel of Jesus Christ has gone that this verse has not become almost instantly known. It is the first verse that translators put into another language. And this inexhaustible verse has been the subject of books and songs and has been inscribed on buildings. It has been referenced by famous athletes on their eye black. And at many a professional sporting event, you will find it written on a cardboard sign. This great verse with its emphasis upon God's love and the gift of His love in and through His Son, Jesus Christ, is stupendous. And in this verse, we see that Jesus continues His conversation with a man named Nicodemus. Here we are presented with the mind of God and the heart of God and the will of God as Jesus preaches about Himself to one of the most infamous religious leaders of the day. And in this one verse, God encapsulates his entire message for humanity. God's love for us through his son, Jesus Christ. And today, as we celebrate the final Sunday of Advent, we are reminded of what God gave us at Christmas as the Gospel of John gives us four precious truths about the love of God. Would you notice, first of all, with me, the depth 
of God's love. Jesus says, for God so loved the world. And at the outset of this magnificent verse, just like the first verse of Genesis and the entire Bible for that matter, John assumes the existence of God. For the Bible never attempts to prove God's existence. It always assumes the existence of God as an established fact. And moreover, you'll notice in this first phrase that John tells us that this one true and living God who has always existed is a God of love. Friends, God is a God of love because it is, it is His nature and it is His character to love. And the word that is used here to describe God's love is the word agape. It's the most commonly used word in Scripture to describe the love that God the Father has for His Son and the love that the triune God has for His people. This word describes God's determinative choice to love those whom He chooses to love. And with the opening phrase of this verse... You and I are ushered into the eternal counsel of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're not able to see or hear this counsel. We can only read and believe what we are told. And what we are told in this first phrase of this verse is that God so loved the world. And with this phrase, we see the depth of God's love. The Bible teaches us that God's love is eternal. Look at how the verse begins. For God. And the reference to God is referring specifically to God the Father because He is the author and He is the architect of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. My friends, the gospel always begins with God. It never begins with you and me. It always begins with God. And this phrase tells us that God's love for us originated in eternity past and that its love will continue and flow all the way into eternity future. That's why Jeremiah said in Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 3, The Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. An everlasting love from eternity past to eternity future. And the prophet Jeremiah teaches us that there has never been a time that God began to love and that there will never be a time that God will cease to love because God is a God of love and it is His very nature. It is His very character to love. But His love is not only eternal, the Bible teaches us that God's love is sovereign. And Paul writes to the Ephesian believers in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, and this is how he describes God's sovereign love. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In love 
God sovereignly predestined his people for adoption as sons through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. James Montgomery Boyce, commenting on this truth of God's love, says God's love is a sovereign love. His love is uninfluenced by anything in the creature. And if that is so, it is the same as saying that the cause of God's love lies only in himself. In Scripture, no cause for God's love other than his electing will is ever given. It is a sovereign love. And this was God's explanation to the nation of Israel for why he loved them. This is what he told them in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And friends, just like the nation of Israel, there was nothing in us that attracted or merited God's love towards us. God loves us. Because he sovereignly willed and chose and determined to love us. And that is exactly what the Apostle Paul told Titus in Titus chapter 3 verses 4 to 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Oh, can't you see, friends, the origin of the gospel, the good news of Christmas, is all bound up in the eternal, sovereign love of God. Why? Why did God create humanity that he knew would rebel against him and reject his love? Why is there a plan of salvation? Why is there a savior? Why is there the gift of the Holy Spirit of God? Why did God establish his church? Why is there the promises of heaven, the promises of forgiveness, the promises of reconciliation, and the promises of eternal life? All of these questions, friends, find their answers in the eternal love and counsel of the triune God. He is a sovereign, eternal, loving God. But he's also a God who is great in love. Look at your Bible. For God so loved. The word so emphasizes degree. Some translate it as intensity. This is how God loves. He loves with intensity. For God so loved. Paul said this about this great love in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. 
But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This is the greatness of his love. And the word great that Paul uses there is used to describe an overflowing harvest. It's used to describe intense emotions. Once again, James Montgomery Boyce says, God is the master of the understatement. Consequently, when he tells us that his love is great, he is telling us that it is so great that it goes beyond our own ideas of greatness. That God's love is so great that you and I can't even fathom the greatness of his love. Which leads me to the next point that scripture teaches us about God's love. It is unfathomable. The Apostle Paul prayed in Ephesians chapter 3 verses 18 and 19 that the Ephesian believers would have strength to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. The love of God for you and me, friends, is simply unfathomable but his love is also infinite look at the verse again for God so loved the world A.T. Robertson defines the word world here as the whole world of humanity that is a reference generally to humanity And this word is what makes John 3.16 extraordinary. For I'll remind you, friends, that God in his holiness detests, hates, and loathes the evil and the wickedness of this world. You see it clearly in Psalm 5, Psalm 7, Psalm 9, Psalm 11, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to the end. And this world, the Bible teaches us, is the object of God's holy wrath. And yet here in John 3, 16, Jesus says that God has an infinite love for humanity. For God so loved the world. Unless you think I'm crazy, I will remind you this morning that this verse is not about the extent of the atonement. This verse is about the extent of of the magnitude of the love of God. When you read John 3.16 in its context, you can come to no other conclusion than that the central theme of this verse is the love of God. And I'll remind you who Jesus is speaking to this morning. He is speaking to Nicodemus, one of the leading Pharisees of the day, a group of people who believed that God only loved them. But Jesus was showing Nicodemus and Jesus is showing us that God's love is too vast. It's too high. It's too deep. It's too wide to be contained to one group of people. Then in fact, the Bible teaches that God's love is so infinite. It is so vast It will reach and touch every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every land. And while there is an infinite distance between God and His holiness, 
and the wickedness and the evil of this world. John 3.16 teaches us that the unfathomable, infinite, sovereign, eternal, great love of God bridges the gap from sin and wickedness and evil and humanity. It bridges that gap between a holy God and sinful man. That's why this verse is so amazing. For God's holiness and our sin magnify the very love of God for the glory of God. But I want you to hear me carefully this morning. Even though this word world is referring to all of humanity, this verse does not teach that everyone will be saved. All you have to do is look at the end of verse 16, where Jesus says clearly that some will indeed perish. No, friends, what this verse is teaching is that there is only one Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And He is the Savior for everyone in the world. But only those who believe in Jesus Christ and only those who are birthed into the kingdom through the Holy Spirit of God will receive this salvation and eternal life in Jesus Christ. It's exactly the same language that the Apostle Paul used in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, when he used the word world, emphasizing once again that there's only one reconciler. There's only one way to God. And this is what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 19 and 20. That Christ, in Christ, God was reconciling the world Humanity to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That is John 3.16, friends. That God sent his son into this world to reconcile lost humanity to himself through his son. And those who have received his son have been given the ministry of reconciliation whereby we plead on behalf of God for those who don't know Christ to be reconciled to God. And my dear friends, that's exactly what I'm doing at this very moment. I am pleading with you with all of the earnestness in my heart that if you have never been reconciled to your creator through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would see in this simple text of scripture the overwhelming love that God has for you through his son and that today, this very moment, this very hour, you would be reconciled to God. The Bible teaches us that God's love is also a mighty love. That he is able to do everything that his love desires. J.I. Packer said, God's love has at its heart an almighty purpose to bless, which can never be thwarted. It's exactly what the Apostle Paul described in Romans chapter 8, at the end of this 
marvelous chapter. He says this in Romans 8.35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And do you know how he answers all those questions? No! Nothing can separate us. Verses 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can thwart the love of God. This may be my favorite description of God's love in the Bible. The Bible teaches us that God's love is unchangeable. Oh, listen to this, friends. Someone in here probably needs to be reminded of this this morning. His love is so unchangeable that nothing that you and I have ever done or will do can stop or alter his love. The prophet Jeremiah reminds us that God's love is not dependent upon our faithfulness to him. That God's love is rooted, listen, it is rooted in his faithfulness to us. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. His steadfast love. Do you hear it, friends? It never comes to an end. It never stops. It never fades. Tomorrow morning when you wake up, it's staring at you in the face. His steadfast love is new to you. Every single morning when you wake up. As the psalmist said in Psalm 23, His grace and His mercy and His favor is chasing after you through His love. The great Puritan John Owen described it this way, Though we change every day, yet His love does not change. If anything in us or on our part could stop God loving us, then He would long ago have turned away from us. Don't you know that's true? It is because his love is fixed and unchangeable that the Father shows us infinite patience and forbearance. If his love was not unchangeable, all of us would perish. Oh, we change, friends. But his love never changes. That's why he simply says to us, For God so loved the world. And finally, I want you to see in this depth of God's love that God's love is personal. Who better to teach us of the personal nature of the love of God than the one who tried to destroy God's church and persecute God's people, the Apostle Paul himself. And in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, this was his testimony. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In this life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Did you hear it? Who loved me. God's love is personal. In a room this size, almost full, 
God, through the power of his Holy Spirit, can take these simple truths from his word about his love and the way he loves and how he loves. And he can speak directly into your heart and soul and life this morning and making it personal as if, listen, as if you were the only one in this room that he was speaking to. To remind you, to show you that his love is real and it is personal. And with all of these descriptions of God's love, there's only one conclusion that you and I can come to. It is impossible to exhaust the love of God. Frederick Lehman wrote a hymn attempting to summarize all of these great truths of God's love. And later, after he finished the hymn, a final stanza was added to it when it was found written on the wall of a room of an insane asylum by a man who many believed had come to know Christ before he died. And this is the final stanza. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints and the angels' song. It's the depth of God's love. And I ask you this morning, do you know this love? Have you been touched by this love in such a way that you've thrown yourself in humility and dependence upon this God of love? That you've cast everything that you have and everything that you are upon his compassion and love for you. Oh, unbeliever, would you allow the indifference and the hardness of your heart to be softened by the reality and the truth of this great inexhaustible love of God? And would you turn to Christ today and believe in him for salvation and reconciliation to God? You may be here today and you may already be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. But your confession and your testimony this morning would be that the reality of God's love has waned and grown cold in your life. That it doesn't move you anymore. That you've taken it for granted. It may be that you've not been loving those around you through the pattern that God has given you in His love. Whether it's through distance or despair or darkness or disobedience, your love is not mirroring God's love this morning. Well, John reminds us in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 11 that if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. It means that this love of God that we're hearing and studying about this morning should adorn our marriages. It should adorn our homes. It should adorn our friendships and our relationships. 
and ask you this morning, believer, would you confess the state of your heart and soul on this Christmas Eve? That you need the love of God refreshed and rekindled in your life toward Him and toward those around you. Well, we not only see the depth of God's love, Jesus also reveals the demonstration of God's love. Look at the very next phrase, that he gave his only son. The word that introduces the result of the depths of God's love. For God so loved the world in such an intense and deep way that it resulted in him giving his son. That's the proper way to translate it. How do you know God loves you? How do you know the depths of God's love for you? Well, John 3.16 answers those questions. And it tells us that God loves us so much that he demonstrated his love for us by giving us his only son. Did you know that it is possible to give? It is possible to do something and not love. You see it every day with your children. You tell them to do something, and they don't want to do it, and so then you reinforce that they will obey you, and then little Johnny or Jane do something like this to obey, to give or do whatever you've asked them to do. And in that moment, are they doing it with a right heart attitude of love? No. They're trying to escape the rod. That's all they're doing. But did you know... That when you love, you can't help but give. I mean, it's, it's a reality in my life. I love Christmas. I love to buy Christmas presents. And I will go overboard. And Gretchen will have to say, I think that's enough. No, I, I want to get him this. They could, no, I think that's enough. Why? Because I'm trying to express my love for those I care most about. And it is impossible to love without giving. And Jesus says that God's love is so deep that he showed it by giving his only son. Did you know that God gave his son intentionally? That it is horrible theology For you to believe that God didn't know that Adam and Eve were going to sin and bring sin into the world. And that after Adam and Eve sinned, God had to have a plan B and figure out how he was going to correct what Adam and Eve did. There are people that believe that. I hope you don't believe that. That is horrible theology. Because the Bible teaches the exact opposite. The Bible teaches that Jesus Christ was the gift that God the Father planned to give from before the foundation of the world. That before Genesis 1-1, God the Father in love decided to give his son to the world. The Apostle Peter in his very first sermon in Acts chapter 2 in verse 23 testifies to this reality He said, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Foreknowledge when? Foreknowledge before Genesis 1-1. God determined that he would give his son. 
And the giving of his son was intentional. But did you know that God gave his son uniquely? Look at what the text says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now some translations, especially some of the older ones, say only begotten, which has really confused many people and caused them to think that Jesus is created. Can I just help you with that quickly, parenthetically? Jesus is not created. Jesus is God. No, this phrase, only begotten or only, can literally be translated this. Unique. One of a kind. Jesus Christ is the unique Son of God. Jesus Christ is the one of a kind Son of God. He was uniquely born of a virgin. He took on human flesh with all of its weaknesses and all of its suffering. He was tempted in every way that you and I are tempted, and yet he never sinned. He was unique. He was one of a kind. He is the only Son of God. But we should not think of the gift of Jesus as merely referring to his condescension and coming to take on the form of humanity. We must also consider him taking up the cross and his suffering and his dying in our place that we might be forgiven for our sins because God gave his son sacrificially. It has been argued that the greatest love anyone could ever observe is the love that a parent has for their child. And if that statement is true, friends, look at this text. In this text... We see that when God gave his son to the world, God gave his heart to the world. His son was the one in whom the father declared, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He is the one in whom God the father loves and has given all things into his hand. He is the one whom the God the Father has highly exalted and bestowed on him the name that is above every single name. He is the one in whom God the Father enjoyed intimate fellowship with in eternity. God had one and only Son. And because of his love for the world, he gave his Son to die. Isn't that what Jesus just told Nicodemus in John 3, verses 14 and 15? When I am lifted up, just like Moses lifted up the servant, I'll draw all people to myself. He came to die. And the sacrificial gift of God's love was both physical and spiritual. Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrated his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It means that Jesus Christ is the proof or the exhibition of the love of God for you and for me and for the world. And in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10, John says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins the satisfaction for our sins. For when Jesus hung on the cross, there came a moment when God the Father unleashed all of his wrath for the sin of the world upon his son. And in that moment, God's son cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God forsaken of God, as Luther said, who can understand it? And in that moment, 
Jesus Christ suffered spiritually as he bore the weight of the sin of the world on his body in that tree. And he did it, John says, to propitiate or satisfy the wrath of God so that God's wrath wouldn't be poured out on you. God's love is so generous, it's so great, it's so intense that he would take his only son. And as the prophet Isaiah says, crush him for you. That's what he did in Jesus Christ. Jeremiah Burroughs, the great Puritan, said, Behold the infinite love of God to mankind and the love of Jesus Christ, that rather than God see the children of men to perish eternally, he would send his son to take our nature upon him and thus suffer such dreadful things. Herein God shows his love. It pleased the father to break his son and to pour out his blood. Here is the love of God and of Jesus Christ. What a powerful meditation this should be. John Flavel said, you can understand when somebody might give their son for a friend. But God gave his son for enemies. Oh, the depth of this love. Oh, friends, Jesus Christ is the greatest gift that's ever been given. How could God show you that he loved you any more than in giving his son? Well, Jesus not only reveals the depth of God's love and the demonstration of God's love, he also reveals the decision regarding God's love. Look at the verse again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him. Do you see that word that again? It connects this phrase with the previous phrases. It connects it to the demonstration of God's love. God demonstrated his love for you so that if you will believe in him. The word whoever, it refers to anyone who will believe. Whoever will believe. Did you know that the Bible teaches that there are key elements that must be involved in belief? That you must have knowledge. That you must have certain facts. You must believe that Jesus is who he said he was. And that Jesus did what he said he would do. And that you are who God says you are. And that you need Jesus just like God says that you do. You need to have that knowledge. And then you need to assent to that knowledge. You not only need to know the facts... But you need to assent to it. You need to be convicted that these things are true. You need to be convicted that this is real and that this is right. And then it involves your will. That it's not just enough to know about it. It's not just enough to believe that it's true for you. Now you've got to do something about it. You have to act on it. You have to involve your will. You have to make a commitment. It's not enough to affirm that everything that you've heard me say today is true. You must also embrace it personally, trusting in Christ, committing your life to him, turning away from the world and turning to Jesus. Look at what the Bible says. Whoever believes in Christ believes into Christ. It doesn't mean you just believe about him. It means that you believe into him. 
that you've been confronted by the Word of God through the power of the Holy Spirit this morning, and you're affirming that all of this is true, and you believe it, and you say, I think he's right. I feel like I'm the only one in the room, and God's talking to me. And you believe it, but then you commit your will to it. You believe in to Jesus Christ, because it's only being in Christ that makes you a Christian. You can't straddle the fence. You can't have one foot in the world and one foot in the church. You can't have one foot in the world and one foot with Christ. Christ demands all. He wants all of you, not a part of you. He didn't just die for half of you. He died for all of you. And he says, if you'll believe in him, if you'll believe in him, if you'll believe into him, you have eternal life. It's a decision that everyone in this room must make regarding the love of God. Well, Jesus not only reveals the depths of God's love, the demonstration of God's love, and the decision regarding God's love. Finally, he reveals the distinction of God's love. Do you see the final phrase? Should not perish, but have eternal life. And with this final phrase, Jesus makes a distinction between those who believe and those who do not believe. And there's two aspects to this division. Do you see it? One of them is negative, and the other one is positive. We'll begin with the negative. Whoever believes in him should not perish. The negative. The word perish literally means destruction. It literally describes a final state of torment. Listen to me. It doesn't mean extinction. The Bible knows nothing of extinction. All of us are going to live forever in one place or another. No, this isn't an extinction. This is a final state of torment where you will perish forever apart from Christ. One commentator said, all of hell is wrapped up in this one word, perish. It means that for all eternity, you would be consumed with the eternal wrath and judgment of God. But now look at the text carefully in the negative. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes into Christ should not perish. They should not suffer like this. It is a negative denial. It means that when you believe into Christ, it is an absolute certainty. It is an absolute promise of God that you will never perish because you're in Christ. Now, do you see the contrast in the verse? But, and I think that's one of the best words in the Bible, the word but. And he contrasts it. If you believe into Christ, you should not perish, but will have eternal life. Now look at the language carefully. Have is present tense. It doesn't mean that one day you'll have eternal life. It doesn't mean that you hope to have eternal life. My dear friends, it means this very moment, if you believe into the Lord Jesus Christ, this very instant, you will have eternal life. You'll have it right now. It's the promise of life now, and it's the promise of life in the future forever with Him. But here's the reality. If you don't believe into Jesus Christ now, if you don't have life in this life, you won't have life in the life to come. You'll perish. 
If heaven doesn't come to you in this life, you won't go to heaven in the next life. And the distinction between those who perish forever and those who live forever is believing in to Jesus Christ. That's why John 1.12 says, But to all, to all who did receive him, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. J.C. Ryle summarized this magnificent verse of Scripture with these words. If men do not have eternal life, it is never because God did not love them. It is never because Christ was not given for them. It is because they would not believe in Christ. Friends, John 3.16 is what God gave at Christmas. And it summarizes his entire message to humanity. His love for us through his son, Jesus Christ. And as we celebrate this final Sunday of Advent, we are reminded of the greatness, the uniqueness of this gift. And as a result, all who believe in Christ will live with him forever. And those who refuse to believe will perish apart from him forever. Would you believe? Would you believe this morning in Jesus Christ? Would you be a whosoever? Children, would you believe? Would you believe that Jesus died for you? Sir, ma'am, would you believe? Student, would you believe? Senior adult, would you believe that God gave Jesus for you? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the simplicity of it and the power of it. And we thank you for the gift of your son. Help us to believe and rest in Christ. We thank you for this time of worshiping together as your people. We pray that your love for us would just overflow in our lives back towards you and towards one another. We ask these things in Jesus' name.